Good morning, everyone. If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Today we'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 37. You can find this beginning on page 229 in the that are located in front of you. Northridge would like to remind you that if you do not have a Bible of your own, feel free to please take one of these home with you. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you have sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed their leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in their wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you hold, had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants were in and possessed this land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good, all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. 
Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies, and you made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from them. You heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rested, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And when you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your people, through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves to this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the unfiltered history that it gives us of humanity, of uh, the people of God. We thank you so much for that, Lord. We pray that you would um, just speak to us through this message and let us see, God, how like the people of Israel that we are and, and how that our condition, our desperate condition, cries out to us that we need a Savior. And so, God, we thank you for that. We pray that you would, uh, those of us who know you, that we would be stirred again to love, to worship, to thanksgiving for the work of Christ that has has redeemed us. For those who don't know you, we pray that they would be awakened to their need of you and need of a Savior and that they would follow you and serve you you and and submit to you. God, we pray for every person here to hear the word of God, to receive the full revelation of what it is meant for, and God, that you would also help me to be able to preach it accurately, preach it to the benefit of all who would hear, and God, to, to do it in a way that pleases you most of all. And I thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I have to pre-apologize. I have a little bit of a cough this morning, so this will be this will be a fun for uh, if you're listening to the podcast six weeks from now. This will be fun for you, I guarantee you. So maybe we can edit that out. But um, if you've been at Northridge Life Church for a while, you may be surprised at the length of our text this morning. It was I think 31 or 32 verses, and. 
You may know from being here that my usual preaching method, um, it usually involves shorter passages and takes us through the text thought by thought, you know, word by word, um, you know, we, we, concept by concept. We kind of do it like that. And so when you see me give the assignment to Erica to read 31 verses, you may be gravely concerned that we are not getting out of here till about 5.30 p.m. Rest assured, however, that I only intend to do like a 30,000-foot 30, uh, 30, overview of this passage. So we will not be, you know, digging into the original languages on every word you just read. I promise you that. So, um, and, and my point is to make a point as we prepare for Christmas, we're entering into the Advent season. I'm, this is the beginning of the Advent series that we're going to preach uh, this week. And, and you may be scratching your head on that because we didn't talk about mangers and angels and shepherds and things of that nature. We'll get there, I promise. Advent preaching usually centers on the majesty of Christ's arrival, the, all the things that I just mentioned. And I hope that... The, the majesty will be apparent to you as we proceed through the messages of this month. But I want to build the case for the beauty of the incarnation by first examining with you why Christ had to come and save us and why there was no other option, that Jesus was not a plan B, nor was there a plan B. It had to be exactly the way that it was. And so today we'll be affirming the fact, as I said in my prayer, that we need a Savior and that we can't save ourselves, we can't help ourselves out of the mess that results from our humanity. And God willing, next week, we'll talk about the uniqueness of Christ's arrival. Why it had to be the way the Bible records it. There, you, know, you can't rewrite that uh, story to make it any different. It had to be the way the Bible records it. And then lastly, I hope on Christmas Eve Sunday that we'll talk about the ripple effect of what the incarnation means for us now, 2,000 years later. So my goal in this series is to demythologize and desentimentalize um, the Christmas story, the, the story of Christ's nativity. I want to uh, put some distance between what the Bible tells us about Christ coming to earth and all of the other modern and American accoutrements that usually accompany our celebrations this time of the year, Santa Claus, Jingle Bells, White Christmases, etc. Now, before you're also nervous, I'm, I'm trying to lay all your fears right here at the beginning, then I'm going to send you home with a hatchet to chop down your Christmas tree, your pagan Christmas tree. I am not going to do that. Um, all the things I just mentioned, Santa Claus, Jingle Bells, White Christmases, Christmas trees, all those things are um, a consistently a part of Christmas at the Sharp household. So I don't mean putting distance between the story of Christ and the story, and those things from an overly pharisaical or legalistic perspective. Um, but, but I want you to see that they are not comparable. I grew up watching the 1964 Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, did anybody else watch that when they were growing up? I think probably most of you. I loved it. And you know what? God willing, my grandchildren are going to watch it. But there is no comparison between that, that crafted fantasy, that fiction, and the story of Christ's incarnation. The, the, the majesty, the glory, the, the reality of it is in two different worlds. And that's what I want to 
to, to focus on. So my prayer is that the glory of all that Christ's birth entails will thrill your hearts and prompt worship from you, not only in December, but perhaps in April and perhaps in August, that you will recall all that happened that night in Bethlehem and your heart will have no response but to rejoice. So while we're exploring why we need a Savior, I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to make frequent references to specific verses without pausing to reread them. Um, And that way you won't get lost. You can keep up with me and kind of know where we're at. Um, So the context of our lengthy text this morning is as follows. The 70-year Babylonian exile is over, and the Persian Empire has allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, to return to Jerusalem. And you'll recall that the people had been delivered into the hands of the Babylonians by God himself to punish them for their rampant idolatry as well as their rejection of God's perfect law that he had given them. God had promised the Jews that they would return to Israel before their exile began. He promised that they would return to Israel, that he would not forsake them, and that uh, he would even visit them in the land of their exile. Um, Now, the time of all of this exile, 70 years, is complete. It's done. And many of the Jews are returning to Jerusalem. First, we see it under the leadership of Ezra, who is a priest, a teacher of the law. Ezra in the Bible is is kind of the prequel to Nehemiah. These two books go together, Ezra and Nehemiah. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we learn that Nehemiah has been elevated to a very high position in the kingdom of the Persian Empire, and he's serving the Persian king as a cupbearer. A cupbearer, as many of you know, is a very high position because he's the guy that tests whether someone's trying to poison the king. He'll take the first sip of whatever the king is drinking to see if he's there. So it would seem that the king has to have a lot of confidence, a lot of trust in the guy that's handling his food and drink. So that's what he's doing. And and while he's doing this, he receives word from home that at 13 years after Ezra's departure back to Jerusalem, that the walls of Jerusalem are still completely broken down, the gates of the city are burned with fire, and the residents there are living in great trouble and shame. We're told that with a burdened heart that he mourned and he wept and he fasted and he prayed for several days. And when he stood before the king after this time of prayer, Artaxerxes saw that his face was sad and he asked him about it. Hey, what, what's going on with you? Why do you look so depressed? And Nehemiah, Nehemiah told him of the deplorable condition of his capital city and how he was troubled by it. And the king does something absolutely incredible, divine, providential. He asks Nehemiah what he can do to help Nehemiah out. And Nehemiah asks for permission to go and return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls of the city. Now, by God's grace, what happens is the king not only agrees to this request to allow him to go and, and take care of the city, but he richly supplies him with money and building supplies to complete the task. And Nehemiah, with several others, make haste to Jerusalem. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, things are worse than he could have ever imagined. The walls are not just broken down, they are demolished. The people are demoralized. Furthermore, they're constantly harassed by these local 'er ne'er-do-wells who are constantly trying to put a stop 
to the work that, that Nehemiah has been sent to do. But Nehemiah, uh, in the strength of God, persists in his task. And with amazing speed, with God's protection, this massive building project is completed as the people work, the Bible tells us, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. The trowel is to build what they came to build and the sword is to defend what they are building. And there's a lot of gospel implications of that that maybe we'll do a series through Nehemiah someday and talk about. But the work that Ezra and Nehemiah have to oversee is far from done just because the walls are built. It becomes obvious that the people have not forsaken all the sins that resulted in their exile from the land. And so these men, Ezra and Nehemiah, set aside time to publicly read the law. They read to the whole nation that they assemble the entire book of Deuteronomy. They, they take, set aside time to celebrate the festivals that have been long neglected and the, the apex of this is that they, they call the people to repentance. Now, chapter 9 that we read most of today is the corporate prayer of repentance that the people prayed. And the chapter ends with a covenant renewal service. It constitutes, the reason I wanted to go through it this morning at length at the, without edits, is because it constitutes a pretty complete summary of Jewish history from the call of Abraham, the father of the nation, to the devastating exile that's brought them into the situation that they're now in. And so the prayer begins in verse 6 with an acknowledgement of the uniqueness of God. Everything that we talked about in the series on the attributes, this is how they begin their prayer. And they say that his uniqueness is seen in his creative work, that he alone is worthy to be praised because he's the architect of everything we see. He is the God who built it all. And next, in in verses 7 and 8, they acknowledge God's electing work. And we see that of all the people on the earth at the time, God made his covenant with one man, with Abraham, their forefather, and promised him heirs more numerous than the stars of the sky and an eternal dwelling place for his people. When we get to verses 9 through 12, they remember how that when Abraham's heirs were enslaved, and persecuted in Egypt for 400 years, how God remembered them and how he delivered them from their captivities by amazing signs and wonders, including making a way for them on dry ground through the Red Sea. Then that sea eventually crashed down on their enemies. God completely delivered them out of Egypt. Verses 13 and 14 recall how, as a part of their deliverance from Egypt, God met with them at Mount Sinai. And he did it for the purpose of providing his perfect law for them so that they could be forgiven, so their sins could be atoned for, and so that they could live in God's presence like no other people on the face of the earth. Verse 15 points out how God provided for all of their needs miraculously. He provided food that literally fell from the sky every day in the middle of the desert. He he provided water that flowed out of a rock in order to sustain and slake the thirst of his people. Now, pause for a second in the narrative and let me ask you, what people on the face of the earth at this point in human history were more privileged? Who would that be? Who would that include? Well, no one. God had selected them. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. What more could God have done for the Jews 
to make his goodness known to them. He's delivered them. He's provided for them. He's given them a law that, that basically translates into him, giving them access to him, even in all of his holiness. What or who had more cause to rejoice in God's love, his protection, his provision, his mercy, his grace? No one. This is what how God himself says it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Wow. What an amazing thing at that time in history that would have been to hear. Because as far as I know... We are a group of probably well over 99% Gentiles in this group. I don't know of any, uh, you know, uh, ethnic or, or, you know, uh, national Jews in our group. And so these things would have meant nothing to us several thousand years ago. So imagine what it meant to the people who received those things or what it should have meant. But here's the question, though. This is where it gets problematic. Did all that goodness result in steadfast faithfulness on the part of his chosen people? No. Verse 16, 17 says that the people acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck, which is symbolic of rebellion. They did not obey. How? More clear could that be stated. They did not obey. They were not mindful of the wonders God performed among them. See, the story of the exodus out of Egypt into the promised land is one continuing saga of grumbling, complaining, unbelief, immorality, idolatry, just over and over again, right after receiving, right after receiving the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? Somebody shout it out. What's the first commandment? Come on, braver, braver, come on. Okay, you shall have no other gods before me. What is their response to this clearly stated law that God makes? Well, you know, these rebels forged a golden cow so that they might fall on their face before it and give thanks to it for their deliverance from Egypt. They were an entirely idolatrous and ungrateful lot. And yet in spite of this, one of the longest portions of our text that we read today, verses 17 through 25, describes God's faithfulness, his long-suffering, his patience, his love. Nehemiah's prayer recalls the meaning of Yahweh's name, which he revealed to Moses when he says that God is a God who is ready to forgive. He's gracious and he's merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And these verses, 17 through 25, reveal God's mercy in still leading them with pillars of cloud and fire, providing manna and water all the way to the border of the promised land. God's spirit remained with them to instruct them. Their clothes, the Bible says here in Nehemiah, didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Now, Some of you need to really think about this feet not swelling. They were been marching for 40 years. Some of us get winded from the front row to the back row. 40 years and their feet didn't swell. It's an amazing way that God provided for them. They were given kingdoms, literal kingdoms in the promised land that they didn't build. 
They were a fertile people. God made sure of that. And they brought many new covenant children into the nation. God fought their enemies for them. The houses they acquired by conquering were already furnished. The wells were already dug. The fields were already planted. And the result of this, verse 25. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Now we need to ponder over that verse for a second. It's okay to the, to delight in the God who is good to us, but notice they delighted in the goodness and they did not delight in God. This is Nehemiah's way of telling us that they were, as we say in our culture, fat and happy. Everything was provided. They had need of nothing. And surely, logically, this would result in worship and thanksgiving from the depths of their hearts. And yet once again, Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 9 paints a very different picture. If you're still open there, look at verse 26 with us. Nevertheless, after everything I just described, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies twice in this, in this passage we read today that we were told that they committed great blasphemies. And for all this rebellion, God raised up enemies against his people to bring them to repentance. The Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, many others. All of these were tools of loving discipline in God's righteous hand. And God, being rich in mercy, would send them deliverers every time they would humble themselves and cry out to him. God never said, nope, forget it, we know how this is going to go. No, he loved them. He was merciful. His steadfast love never failed. And he would, when they would humble themselves and cry out to them, and, but, but this became a, a kind of wash, rinse, repeat cycle for the, for the Jews. They would rebel and they'd fall under another nation's power. But they cried to God and he would save them. Verses 29 and 30 tell the end of the Jewish nation's story from Nehemiah's historical perspective, where he's at in history. (coughs) God bore with them and warned them by his spirit through the prophets were told. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the others. But their heart had become so hardened... And their ears had become so deaf to his warnings that he gave them up to foreign nations and they went into exile, all of God's people, to Assyria and Babylon, respectively. And in verse 31, we read, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. They had broken, you know, if you look at the covenant that God made with them as a two-sided affair, they had broken every one of their uh, the, the, uh, the things that were required of them. Every one of them. God would have been totally justified, like he said to Moses after the golden calf, of just wiping them out and starting from scratch. And yet, it was so deeply ingrained in the attributes of God, his great mercy, that he doesn't make an end to him. He doesn't forsake him. He's gracious and he's merciful. And if you're a believer here for longer than 10 minutes, you have experienced this thing over and over that God's 
great mercies have not made an end of you. Amen? God has never forsaken you. Amen? You have found God to be gracious and merciful. Amen? Wow. Now, do you deserve that mercy and grace any more than the Jewish people? I have to say, I do not. I do not. And yet God remembered his people. He watched over them. He provided for his people, even in exile. He had said this beautiful verse, one of my favorite in scripture, through Isaiah. Can a woman forget her nursing child? I see, you know, there's women here that have very small babies. My third grandson was just born. Uh, It's so amazing. But God paints this almost horrific picture. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. But I will not Forget you. God loves you more than your mama ever has. He will not forget you. He says, behold. And this is such a beautiful picture of the cross and Christ's wounds. He says, behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, these walls of Jerusalem that that Nehemiah was building, your walls are continually before me. God's saying, I'm thinking about that city more, uh, way more often than you ever are. In verses 32 through 37, the people once again are crying out to God to look upon their pitiful estate. And this begins with a heartfelt acknowledgement of God's righteousness throughout their history in, his, in both his mercy and in his judgments. His actions were justified no matter how he dealt with the nation in the past because he is always only Good. And all the church said. But the reverse was also true. The Jews have to acknowledge that they have only been inconsistent, unfaithful, sinful, deserving nothing but God's wrath, deserving to be forsaken by him. And this has now resulted in them living as slaves to a foreign king in the very land that God had graciously promised and subsequently given to them to inhabit And their only hope of survival or return to the blessing is not in themselves. You will never, ever return to God's blessing by what you do, by what you bring to the table, by your half of the equation. You will never get there. But your only hope of survival is found exclusively in the grace of God. They clearly don't deserve another chance because they've proven beyond question they're stiff-necked, rebellious people. And though this prayer of humiliation and repentance, I'm convinced, was sincere and an important return to the God of their fathers on behalf of the Jewish nation, the history of, of Israel after this, from Nehemiah to Christ, shows that the same cycles decried in this prayer were repeated over and over again by the Jews. And so what significance does this prayer (coughs) and the historical narrative it relays have to do with us? Much in every way. This is not dry history from a history, a high school history book. This is, this is very practical for us. See, the history of the Jews is the history of the church. The church is revealed 
God's plan for the church is revealed in the Jewish nation of old, and the Jewish nation is perfected and completed in the church. But how is this so? Well, first among the advantages given to the Jews was a national calling that began with Abraham. After Abraham was told to sacrifice his God, uh, his son, and then God uh, provided a uh, a lamb in, in, his, in his place, Abraham, uh, God, re- remarking on his obedience, says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Neither Abraham nor any of his heirs did anything to warrant this calling from God. This, this election from God to say, Abraham, you are my guy. It was a matter of grace extended to him. And Abraham believing God in faith resulted in him being made righteous. Genesis fifteen six. he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Even when God allowed the nation of Abraham's people to live as captives in Egypt, he watched over them. He caused them to grow and expand to the point where Pharaoh saw them as a threat and began to persecute them. But God, again, not from any merits of their own, remembered them and raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt with great signs and wonders. And this is where the story gets tricky. Soon after the exodus, God led the people to Mount Sinai, as I said earlier, where he claimed them as his own and gave them laws and statutes, showing them how uh, he could be known and approached, and uh, you know, uh, that the, how they could have access to him. And though they lived in a theocracy directly under the rulership of God, God was their king. Within days, they built idols, as we said earlier, and engaged in a fleshly form of worship. This is how Moses writes it in Exodus 32. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So much of our worship today is just play. It's just, it's just frivolity. It's just fleshy and, and consumeristic and entertainment. And so what does this show us? They have God as their king, they're a theocracy, God had given them perfect rules to live by, perfect policy. It shows us that the very best government, if we could achieve it tomorrow, and policy is not enough to restrain the moral pollution that infests all humanity. Did you hear that? Some of you are very concerned. What are we going to do about Biden? Others of you are on the other side of the thing. What are we going to do about Trump? And you know what I say? I say, I don't have to worry about either because either are not my king. I don't live under the government of Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I am, I have heavenly citizenship, the Bible tells me. And, and from that heavenly place, I am awaiting a savior who is Christ the Lord. Who could be a better king than God? Who, what better policy could be found than his law? And yet millions of Christians imagine that revival begins with what Washington does. 
what Austin does, what Lubbock City Council does, instead of recognizing our desperate need to be internally, spiritually rescued from ourselves, not from them, from us. We saw next how God provided everything the Jews needed during the Exodus, gave them territory, houses, stuff when they possessed the promised land. And yet we read in places like the book of Judges how they turn from God again and again, rejecting his law and clinging to idols and immorality. And this shows us the folly of material pursuits. Who hasn't said among us, if I only had a little bit more income, if I only had better stuff, if I could get rid of this junker and get me a better car and all these things. But living for the sake of accumulating gain will more often shipwreck us spiritually as opposed to being a benefit to us. We should all be cautious that the blessings we so richly enjoy as Americans don't become the vehicle for our spiritual destitution. The last thing I want is to be rich in this world and and in poverty towards Christ. Jesus says, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where thieves don't steal. They don't get rusty and, and moths don't devour them. It's a special kind of believer who acknowledges that God will never withhold from us anything we need. Now, I'm going to do what I do sometimes and I'll repeat that because some of you right now are concerned about something you don't have It's a special kind of believer who acknowledges that God will never withhold from us anything we need. If we don't have it, it's because he's decreed in his wisdom and his goodness that we don't need it or we don't need it yet. Stuff will never save us. We need more satisfaction in Christ alone. Nehemiah closes our text by showing the Jews making a heartfelt commitments to return to the law and repentance and faith. And yet we saw that historically, this fervor of theirs quickly died. And they returned to the same vicious cycle. This shows us that religious vows are not what will save us. That they're not what we need. We are too corrupt. We are too selfish. We're too forgetful. We're too faithless. The old saying goes, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. And this applies universally. See, what we need is not to be given a perfect government or limitless comforts and resources. We need a Savior who can overcome our inherent weakness and our folly And provide something concrete, something potent, something eternal for us that we could never provide in the best, most sincere exertions of our moral will. That's what we need. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. The Jewish nation didn't fail because God had some kind of faulty plan. He didn't say, well, let's try the law. Let's try the priesthood. Let's try the kingdom. No. It didn't fail because they merely failed to follow through on what God had done. No, God allowed the Jews to repeat this cycle repeatedly so that we could have this record that we read today. We could learn from scripture the desperate nature of our estate. 
And so we'd know from God's own lips what won't ever work and so that we might pursue what does, which is Christ. And the good news is that God, beginning in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, promised a remedy. He promised a cure. He promised a healing balm for our incurable sickness. And all that happened with the Jews was pointing us and nudging us towards a glorious Savior who can save us to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25, as we look to him in faith. And he did this in a way that highlights his wisdom and majesty and glorifies his son. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, but I want to read Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, no, 4 through 7 to you. But God, being rich in mercy, just like Nehemiah said, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God has set all this in motion so that he could show you how good Jesus is. So Jesus might be glorified, so Jesus might be praised. And so let's take a moment and ask him to enable us to see this, to not be grumblers and complainers like the Jews in, in the wilderness, but to, to recognize his beauty, his holiness, his, his power to save, his might. Heavenly Father, we, we love you so much. And God, there are not, there, none of us are eloquent enough to, to thank you in a way that is, is even close to worthy of you for the gift of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your humility, your condescension, your obedience to the Father. We thank you for your saving power. We thank you that you are, that when we were looking to have a perfect government, you became a perfect king. When we were looking for perfect provision, God, you provided everything we need for life and godliness. When we um, wanted to make vows and white-knuckle our way into your kingdom, you became uh, uh, the truth for us. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Help us this Christmas to look to you and to worship you and to thank you for all that you have done and all that you are doing and the way that you are, that you have not only saved us, but you are saving us and you will save us. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Let our hearts worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. Amen. I'd like to ask our communion helpers to come forward and help us to serve at the Lord's table this morning. We are always so privileged to be able to gather at his table. And today, particularly so, when we were going through the story of the Exodus, you'll recall that uh, when there was, they were in the middle of a, a desert, nothing to eat, that God rained down heaven, uh, or, or I'm sorry, bread from heaven, they called it manna, for the people. And they, they gathered it for 40 years. They were able to, to never go without what they needed. And um, an interesting exchange happened between Jesus and the Jews in um, uh, in John chapter 6, they're trying to provoke a sign from Jesus to prove everything he's claiming. And and they say, hey, our, our fathers ate bread in the wilderness. Is that something you might be able to accomplish, Jesus? You see, he'd fed them 
that fed the 5,000 the day before. And Jesus looks to him and he says this. And we see how that all of these cycles that the, that the Jews went through were painting a better picture. They had been living in a shadow and God was giving them substance because Jesus looks at them and he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It was never God's intention to feed his people from wafers falling from the sky. It was his, his, his um, intention to satisfy forever the hunger of his people by providing his own son, which is what we celebrate this morning as we take of the bread and the wine. And so I just want to encourage you, if you are someone whose faith is in Christ, you have come to him, you've known him for salvation, come joyfully, come ready to celebrate that, that all of the, uh, the hard work of the Jews, all those cycles are over because now we are saved not because we're holding on to Jesus, but because he is holding on to us. Amen. And so I want you to, I want you to come and just celebrate what, what uh, God did. If you're here and you're not a believer, this is not just an open table. We don't invite you to come because it would mean nothing to you. It would be a mockery of what Christ has done. You cannot partake of the bread of heaven if you have not believed in the one who is the bread of heaven. So just stay where you are. But more importantly, the most important thing we want you to know is that we are absolutely praying for you. We are pleading with you to come to know Christ the Savior. If you want to ask some questions or find out what that looks like, you can talk to Pastor David. You can talk to Pastor Gabriel. You can talk to myself after service, and we would love to show you what that looks like. But for the rest of you, I want to invite you now to come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, beginning, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread this morning. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give praise and thanks to the Lord for this this gift of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your mercy that never fails. Thank you, God, for your loving kindness. Thank you that you are merciful to the uttermost, God. Thank you that you proved it all through Jesus, that he became the perfect longing of our heart and and provided everything we need for life and godliness. We give you thanks. We give you praise. We pray that you would just um, strengthen our hearts to believe you more and more every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. If you would place your hands in receiving position. I want to read this uh, benediction from 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the, through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and gave life and immortality to light, 
through the gospel. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.